but I want to go back to 2005. 2005 was the year Courtney and I were married, and uh, I, we were living in Dallas. We were moved there right after getting married because it was important for us to live in Dallas because that's where I was going to seminary. And we had this apartment we lived in for five years right down the road from the seminary, or four years. So it was three miles away, easy drive, like two or three turns, and we'd get where we needed to go. Uh, and the few times uh, in a year or two that we're in Dallas, or every year or two we might be in Dallas, I kind of, hey, there's, right down there, there's where it is, <clears throat> where we lived. <clears throat> so I got my first job. I, had a, I was a jack-of-all-trades at Starbucks. I worked a lot of part-time jobs over the four years. My first job was at Starbucks, um, and that was to get health insurance. You, know, you need health insurance, you're newlywed, and you got to figure out how to get it. So I worked at Starbucks to get health insurance, and I remember one specific shift manager. He shall remain nameless, because maybe one day he'll hear this sermon and go, were you talking about me? And <clears throat> I'll say, it was a good lesson to learn about myself. Um, but I remember getting mad at him. And I was getting mad at him rather uh, vocally, because I felt like he was teaching me bad things. Now, he wasn't, but I didn't feel like he knew what was best in the moment. And I have a bit, you'll learn more about it next week, but I have a, a bit of a defiant nature where um, if, I don't, if I don't trust you or think that you are going to lead me in the right way, I just kind of tune you out. Um, hope you don't treat me that way, or else I'm not sure what you're going to think about for the next 40 to 45 minutes. But... I had this strong feeling of like, yeah, no. And I remember being back in like the, the kitchen area talking about it. And I, you know, I was not hot, but I came back at him. And the funny thing is like that interaction actually became pivotal in our relationship getting better. Uh, because you, at, when you kind of vocalize that you've stepped out of bounds, you realize it and you, you, can, you can retreat from that position. But it took almost me seeing how ugly that was in the moment to go, yeah. Maybe this is something I, I don't need to have in me. But it's true. I know this is the case for me, often the case for many of us, where we view ourselves as the ultimate authority. We're the ultimate authority. We, we are the one that will decide if something is good or bad, right or wrong, up or down, left or right, black or white, whatever you want to say. We love it. And if we're convinced of something, we can't be changed. And we see this playing out in culture all the time where we are unwilling, unable to submit to something that might even be better. Why? Because we're convinced that we're the best. That's really, our position, our thought, our way of doing something is the best, so we have an incredible inability to submit. And it's interesting because the scriptures do talk about submission, quite a bit, recognizing authority and responding to authority appropriately, and it's almost like that's that part of our Bibles that we just act like it's not really there, or we get a yeah, but to it, yeah, but you know, you don't know what it's like to be, uh, you know, at this church with these leaders or married to this person, I just can't do it, I can't do it, um, and I'm like, I'm not sure your feelings on it change the reality of how we respond to authority, even if you feel like you shouldn't. But that's often where I am, because I, I'll, I'll lead with feeling. Well, I feel like you're crazy, and so I'm not going to respond. But we get to read this week, we get to read next week, 
and then we'll finish out Jesus at the Feast of Booths. But we're going to see the way people, the way he responds to authority, the way he responds to the crowds who are wondering why he teaches the way that he does. But not only that, next week we get to see the crowds in particular. We're going to zoom in on Jesus this week. Next week we see the crowds and the way that they're so confident about their position in Jesus, like how they view him. We know who you are. We know where you came from. We know everything about you. So we see this week Jesus responding to the crowds who are amazed at how he's teaching. And next week we see the crowds back and forth with Jesus where they're just unconvinced that he is who he says he is. Because they're leaning very heavily on their own knowledge to complete what they think they need. But we start with Jesus. John 14 John 7, 14 through 24 is the passage that we're in. And we're going to look at the Lord Jesus really in three ways. We're going to see how, he, uh, how Jesus responds to authority, and that would be his father. So it relates to his obedience, his humility, and his understanding and teaching of righteousness. So obedience, humility, and understanding and teaching of righteousness. These three ideas will follow through in John 7. 14 through 24. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me, John 7, 14 through 24. Again, we are mid-Feast of Booths, the past, last week into this week and the following week and the following week. We're kind of in the same event. Remember last week, Jesus' brothers wanted him to go early and, and be pronounced publicly as somebody who's the Messiah, trying to get his cred back after he lost his, his crowds in John chapter 6. Everyone's leaving him, and so now they're trying to help him out. Let's get him back. He goes, this is not what I do. I listen to the voice of my father. He leaves at the, at the time after they leave, he goes to the feast, which makes sense because he's a Jewish man, and this is a feast that Jewish men are supposed to go to, and so it makes sense that he would go to the feast, but he does not do it in the way that his brothers want him to go. He goes in obedience to the father, and we need to remember that. I'm going to use this verse a lot as we go through John uh, as, we, as we look at it, we'll get there in a moment. We'll use this verse a lot, so we're gonna, hopefully we'll have it memorized by the time it's done, or at least we'll be really close to having it memorized. But we start in verse 14 with the middle of the feast, so, you know, this is the middle of the week. <clears throat> About the middle of the feast, a few days in, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Now, he had already decided not to go up publicly, right? He had said, I'm not going to go up. You go up to the feast, brothers. I'm not going to do that. He says that in verses 3 and 4. Um, they want him to go. He says, I will not. Then they leave. They go, fine, you're not going to, you know, have it your way. They leave, and he follows behind because he goes up privately. He goes up in a way that is not going to be public, not going to be pronounced, not going to let everybody see him and his authority. We'll get to an entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem that is a little more public, but that's not yet. It's not yet. And we need to hold on to John 5.19, which reads like this. We read it last week. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And it may not seem like it's that big of a deal to go up to the feast with his brothers or go up to the feast just a little later, but it is. That's the difference between obedience and disobedience. That's the difference between going up in the way that, the, that man wants and going up in the way that his father wants. And we don't often think about decisions or life like that where 
it matters or it is that significant. But he knew what he would be getting into if he goes with his brothers. He goes up later. Jesus goes only and does only what is at the right time. So even when he stands and teaches, it may seem like he's contradicting his brother's desire. Because now, not only is he there, but now he's making himself known as there. Now he's teaching while he's there. That doesn't seem to square with what we just heard him say in last week's passage. But we have to remember, there's man's way and there's God's way. And Jesus was not rejecting teaching. He was not rejecting being there. He was not rejecting following the feast. He was not rejecting any of that. He was rejecting doing it in the way the world wanted him to do it. But he would not have an issue just with teaching. And it would also be that he's not the only teacher. It's not like you're going to have this kind of run out of a whole bunch of different rabbis out there on the podium to go talk. There would be teaching going on throughout the temple courts. There would be rabbis and people with their schools. So there would always be conversation happening, going on, around and about. I mean, you ever been to a conference with all the breakout sessions? If we could just kind of think, like, what would this be like? There would be people, with, people who would have followers, and their followers, they would teach. They would teach even as they were going through the feast, the festival. And so Jesus was being one of these people because he was a rabbi. He did have followers. He did teach. And so that's what he begins to do. Now, I, I think about this, and Jesus' absolute obedience to the Father. And one thought is, praise the Lord, that's taken care of for me because I can't be absolutely obedient to anything. I mean, I didn't stop being insubordinate in 2005, like to say I did. But here's what's so hard. Because the world will, will often parade this, this virtue uh, about, like it's a good thing. But, but can you really move when the scriptures say move? And can you sit when they say sit? And can you wait when you're not sure? Because we are, live in a world around us where we want movers and shakers, we want to get stuff done, got to go do it, got to get it, move, man, move, do it. You know, ruffle some feathers, get something started. And Jesus just was unconcerned about the, uh, the pressure that the surrounding world would try to put on him, and he would just steadily go in obedience to his father wherever his father would have him go. And he would step into anything his father would have him do. And I look at that and go, we have the scriptures. So often we want to know what God wants us to do when we won't even obey the things that God has made clear. Like, like, and so we're like, ah, oh, but I, I don't want to know that. I want to know like this stuff over here. Like I want to know kind of the stick my head in the bag and learn what's going on in this part of my life or learn God's will for that part of my life. And I'm like, do we really, let's start with what we know is true. And as we obey and live out what we, what we see God has revealed for us, as true and good and right, then we can kind of move on. But very often, I had, this, I had this interaction recently with a friend of mine, and this is just over email, and, and he goes, I can come up with a lot of rules man has made that they hold to more firmly than the things God has made clear that they seem to not care that much about. 
that we're very good at pharisaically making a list of rules that we want people to follow and maybe even maybe even badger them that they do when the things that we do see in the Word, we just go, well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a process. I'm getting there. It is true. Sanctification is a process. But honestly, many of us know there are swaths, large swaths of Scripture that we either ignore or just don't respond to. And we go, how seriously do we want to obey the God who saved us. That challenge maybe how we view life and challenge how we live and challenge how we speak and challenge how we think. And we just, we just want to operate in the way that we want to operate in. Praise the Lord, the Son of God did not do that. That he gave us an example of obedience and is our perfect obedience for us. But it doesn't, it's always the thing, it doesn't opt us out of understanding how God might want us to move. But God hasn't left us in the dark. He's given us his word. It's not like he's just like, good luck, guys. See you later. And, 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 you, and you're left with nothing. He gives you everything that you need. And even then, we still, time and time again, will not actually live out what the Lord has put before us. It is so hard. But Jesus obeys. And he goes only when it is the right time. And he speaks only when he has the things to say. And he responds to people only in the way that his father would have him respond. And it is so hard to think of somebody who would do this. But that's because even as we see the high priestly prayers, we get later into what will probably be the fall. And we see Jesus praying for the unity of his church. That, that his disciples might be one as he is with his father. That kind of unity, that kind of understanding, that, that, that rhythms of how to live and operate together. He's praying for that for us. And so it doesn't seem as if Jesus, Jesus looks at that type of unity or walking as inaccessible or unavailable. He actually prays that we would be able, as a church of disciples, follow in the same type of unity that he and his heavenly father have. He uses that relationship as the example for the way the church is to operate. But Jesus only goes at the right way, in the right time. Now the crowds hear him. <clears throat> Verses 15 through 18 is where we're going to be with this. But the crowds hear him, and they start marveling. Now, <clears throat> with this, they say in verse 15, How is it that this man has learning, has knowledge, is studied. <clears throat> How is it that he understands words when he has never studied? That's a legitimate question. They're marveling at what he's heard. They're amazed at his teaching. This happens in, in all the Gospels. People hear Jesus teaching and they're like, who is this man? He speaks with a type of authority that nobody else has. You ever hear something and you go, that just makes sense. That's how I think of it. Like You just go, that, that works. Yes, yes, that's right. And these people have been fed a, a, a trail of, of half-truths and mistruths. And so when they hear things that are actually aligning, they go, how? How? When he hasn't even studied. Now, what they mean is their understanding of studying was you went to somebody's rabbinical school. You went to somebody's place, you went to their seminary, right? And you would learn from them. 
what it meant and, and, and what it was like to teach and how these pieces fit together. And even then, there were different Jewish rabbis who had different understandings of how the Old Testament would fit together and different understandings of how you would apply the law. And they're hearing Jesus teach, and he's not teaching like any of these other rabbis. He's teaching differently than all of them. Now, this is something, you know, as you, you might see, uh, like, on job boards, for church job boards, they'll go, you know, seminary training preferred but not required, which is a bummer when you go to a lot of seminary. Um, but the recognition that, you know, all it really might say is you, you set yourself into a course for a number of years to learn something. But it doesn't necessarily speak to the condition of your heart. It speaks to something about the, the you and that you would subject yourself to however many years of pain and suffering, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't determine your character. It might, it might just say you're foolish or broke, either one of those. But they're shocked because he hasn't learned from anybody. Jesus doesn't have any credential that should demonstrate him to be as authoritative as he were. And I'll tell you, the reason I went to the first seminary that I went to is because I heard three people from that seminary teach, and I was impressed with all their teaching, and that was the only link that I saw. These men were all different, different convictions, different ways of living, different stages of life, different backgrounds, but like that was a common thread, and so I was like, I'm going to go to that school because you guys all seemed to do the thing I like. You did it well. You did it convincingly. It made sense. So that's why I went where I went. Jesus didn't have that. But he's about to help us understand something with regard to humility. Which is, even though he doesn't have the credential that the world might be looking for. Even though he doesn't have the, oh yeah, well I studied under, studied under, studied under. Because Paul even uses his training as studying under Gamaliel as, as, as positive. right? That, that had some sway. And they're trying to understand why Jesus was doing what he does, does saying what he says, and doing it in such a way that's so convincing and he's going to speak to humility because he's going to say a couple of things. First, he's going to say, I only listen to my father. I speak on his authority. And, and he really, from that, is going to say, and anybody who speaks on their own authority is arrogant. Anybody who's only out for themselves is, is in it for the wrong thing. So that's the language that he's going to give us in 16 through 18. There's marvel that he's never studied. And Jesus said, my teaching's not mine. It's him who, it's his, it is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory from him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. What a line. There's a couple things going on here that are going to be important for us to, to recognize. First, the recognition that Jesus only speaks what was given to him from his Father. That the teaching that you can have from Jesus is trustworthy because he doesn't actually create it. But he gives what was given to him. And then he gives a litmus test for how you'll know, which seems a little bit confusing if you look at verse 17. If anyone wants to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And so he says, they're surprised at his teaching. Follow the thinking here. They're surprised at his teaching. He says, I don't speak on my own authority. And if you want to do God's will, 
you really want to do God's will, you'll recognize that. But it seems unfair because it's almost like he's saying you don't know this. You don't know. If, if you want to do this, you'd know, but you don't seem to know. And so how do we, how do we actually get to verse 17? How do, we, how do we live that out? And this is the part about our lives as Christians that is urgent for our understanding is that our life is lived out by faith, not by our own confidence and our own ability to discern and our own ability to understand. Because the only person who wants to do someone else's will and not their own is someone who is humble to the point that they go, not my will, but yours be done. And you have to be at a posture of faith and submission to even be interested in someone else's will. I mean, you might in the workplace do what your boss desires because you don't want to be fired. But you don't want to actually do it. Or on the back end of it, you go, I knew that was a bad idea. I knew that wasn't going to work out. I knew it from the beginning it was going to stink, and I was just waiting for the wheels to fall off. But if anybody actually wills to do God's will, desires to do what God wants, then you'll know. That takes faith, humility, and submission to God, our Heavenly Father, to be able to to rightly comprehend what Jesus is doing because it is something that is understood by his spirit, not by our own savvy, not by our own, uh, our own skill, not by our own understanding of how the world works. It is otherworldly. And if, if you really see anything, uh, and, and there's many things you could say here, but if you really see anything as we've gone to John to this point, is that really Jesus and the world are operating on totally different planes. And he's teaching things and they're going, huh? What? How, wh- wh- what do you mean? I don't even understand why you would say it that way. Who can do this? Who can say that? Who can call God that? And so he's teaching in an entirely different way, which he's about to get to. We'll get to that just in just a moment. But he's saying, I listen to my father. If you were humble to God, if you, just, if you really desired him, you would understand this. And you'd also understand that the one, if I were to speak on my own authority, I would only want my own glory. But there's a uniqueness in, uh, we call it, uh, scholars would call it the economic trinity. The way the trinity works out in our salvation that we can comprehend. And the imminent trinity is up here, that's always the case. Economic is how it works out for us. And you see this pattern in the economic trinity and how the Father and the Son and the Spirit work together for our salvation. And you see Jesus only doing what the Father does. And you see the Spirit only shining light on the Son. So the Spirit glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father. Within them is submission. Within them is all right, no, it's only one will, but, but, but all we see in, in the Trinity, the, the persons of the Trinity, submission and love and, 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 and pointing to the Father and pointing to the Son. And Jesus will even teach us that all the Spirit does, all he does for us is to shine a light on Jesus' words and works so that we can understand him. And Jesus shows us the Father. And so if there's any place to understand God, it is in the Trinity. 
Father, Son, and Spirit working out for our salvation. Where no person of the Trinity seeks his own glory. And it's, it's really, it's stunning. It's stunning. Anybody watching Moon Knight right now? Anybody? No? You're going to have to admit it. Yeah, a few of us. Few of, yeah, back here. One whole row, hands slowly go up. Yeah. If it's, on your, if it's in your queue, I'm not going to give anything away. Uh, but what do you see in, like, the way that they talk about Egyptian gods? It, it just the way that different faiths express God is sometimes gods just do what they want. And in, in, in polytheistic cultures, those gods might even fight and war against one another in order to get the upper hand. In the Christian understanding of God, one person expressed in three essences, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. Or three persons, one essence, I'm sorry. Three persons, one essence. And so one God expressed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, for our good and for our salvation with no fighting because there's one God. With no contradiction of will, but only with Father, Son, and Spirit all being glorified. All recognizing how Father, Son, and Spirit express themselves for our salvation. It's beautiful and Unique amongst all other faiths, you do not see God expressed this way in any other system. In fact, what you often see are gods expressed as we would think they would work. As we would imagine them to interact. Or faith systems that are so polytheistic that when you present a new God, they go, well, just bring him in or bring her in or bring, it, just bring them all in. We can handle it. Without any consideration of how illogical that becomes down the line. It really, even, even, even to come from a position of, I really think as long as you're a faithful person, that's okay. To whatever revelation you respond to. It, but there's a significant problem with that. Because what if one revelation says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Well, that, that, that kind of removes the anything's fine. Fine for you. Because we have the Son of God saying, this is the only way. This is the only way. Not compatibilism, where all, we can all kind of make it fit together. It's not the end of lost, right? Like, it's not what we get. We get, at the end of the story, Father, Son, and Spirit, new heaven and new earth, God with his people, Satan wiped out, evil gone. That's what we get. And you really can't shoehorn in another system. So we see in the revelation of the Trinity for us, which has always been, we see submission, we see glory, 
we see humility, we see obedience, we see it all acted out through the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I always, I just think to myself, do I, am I more concerned about my own authority and my own glory or humbly submitting myself to God's authority and wanting to do His will? Because submission to God is contra the American way. It's contra the human way. It's not what we do. It's not what we love. It's not what we long for. And we have the example of our Savior, Jesus, teaching us and instructing us on how it works. Jesus is even saying in this that the crowds don't really seem interested in doing or knowing God's desires But they are more than happy to be their own authorities on the subject. And we see that revealed next week in the next passage where they go, how can you be the one? We know where you came from. We know where you were born. We know your family. So they're like, maybe, I don't know if the Messiah is going to do more works than you're doing. You seem to be an impressive man. But still, we have your address, man. We can go talk to your family members. So you can't be the Messiah. So we see again, their authority, their confidence, their assuredness that they know how the world works. And it doesn't work in the way Jesus is saying. And it's funny, because Jesus, he's just not concerned that we're idiots. I mean, he doesn't sit around trying to convince us that he's good. He is very happy to be good in and of himself. And as people reject him, he just moves along. He goes, yeah, you can't come unless the Father's drawing you. And he just moves on and keeps teaching. He's not insecure. But he's also deeply invested in us. So he's not distant The incarnation teaches us that God is not distant. God is not disinterested. But he's also not envious in the sense that he's, oh, please, please listen to me. Please, please hear me. I just need you to hear me. I need you to hear my teaching. I need you to understand who I am. He presents who he is. He presents who he is. And he teaches on his father. And he lives life. And he he continues to do this over and over and over again. One year, two years, three years. He continues to do it. And some go, yes, and most go, no way. No way he is who he says he is. Now, we're about to get into the spot. We have to remember Johnny preached this sermon where Jesus heals on the Sabbath back in John chapter 5. And and the crowds who are there are remembering that that happened some time ago. They're remembering that he taught on the Sabbath, and that still has a little bit of buzz because you have, from their understanding, a rabbi breaking the law in order to do something that he should have just, I mean, if, if, you're, if you are uh, crippled from birth or for decades, they're probably thinking, if you can heal the man, why don't you just wait till Monday, or so, Sunday, I'm sorry, why don't you wait till the day after the Sabbath so that you're not breaking any laws, Why don't you just do that? So they are, they want to arrest him, they want to kill him, they are hostile to the idea that someone would do this, and now he's back in the city where he did this. 
and they haven't forgotten. And we're going to see Jesus in this. Teach us. Now remember, this is the Jesus who only says what the Father says, who only does what the Father does, and he teaches us righteousness. And in this, I mean righteousness as a right understanding in how to live, and a right understanding of what is good, and a right understanding of what God really longs for. And he's about to do something where he shows the crowds just how hypocritical they are in how they're viewing him by highlighting the fact that they're very happy to break one law for a greater law, in a sense. Okay? So he's going to show us something in regard to righteousness, that he shows us a right way of living, which can only be come to by faith. So we see in verse 19 this challenge. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the you is not everybody there, but he knows there's some authorities there who want to see him dead. Moses teaches you the law. He's given you the law. You don't keep the law. The crowds, which would be probably the non-Jewish authority crowds who aren't interested in killing him, they go, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Who here wants to kill you? You're not dead. You're, you're right here. If anybody wanted to kill you, they could. They don't know that that's a joke. They can't because if it's not his time, it's not his time. Not his hour, not his hour. And so they go, you, you, you must be crazy. And this was the view people had of Jesus, right? You see this time and time again, like recently. Oh, he's a good teacher. Well, I don't know. He seems to be causing division. You have a demon. And they don't know what to do with this guy because he doesn't fit any category that they're supposed to have for what the Messiah does. So you have a demon. Why do you think he's trying to kill you? And he goes back to the work that started it all. He goes back to the work from John 5, which started this whole level of hostility, where Jesus was a lawbreaker by drawing a lot of attention to a healed man on the Sabbath. And that was in John 5, 1 through 18. In verse 21, Jesus answers them and says, I did one work that would be the healing on the Sabbath from earlier. And you all marvel at it. Marvel in the sense of you know, guffaw. Think, think about it. Is, is, why would you do that? You, you, he healed on the Sabbath. And now he's going to use an argument from circumcision. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. Because even Abraham lived this out. You see circumcision in the book of Genesis. So when we get to Exodus, we, we see it as a part of how they operate. But circumcision came before Moses. But he's tying it to Moses as a part of the law. The expression of the law. And being God's people. And he goes, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now, here's the thing. You're supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. So what if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath? Well, the thought was obedience to the covenant sign would be more important than a work on the Sabbath. So you don't push it to the ninth day because you have to get past the Sabbath, but you, you do that because there's a greater obedience to the identification as God's covenant people, and that work stands out as different. But Jesus is essentially calling their bluff. And he's saying, wait a, wait a second. You break the law. You break the law. Because you'll do this. But then he kind of gives them credit for reasoning that they might not actually be using. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry at me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So he's using the argument of lesser to greater. 
if, if, if you do this one thing on the Sabbath so that you can obey the law, is it, you're mad at me because I'm going to heal the entire person's body and make them able to, to walk and be a part of the community? You're going to be mad about that? Yet you're not going to be bothered about this little thing. You're going to only be bothered about this big thing, which is actually a better thing to make somebody's whole body well. And so he is really testing where they stand. And again, you, get, you see this distinction between the crowds and the religious leaders knowing what is best. And Jesus teaching them again what is best. The crowds go, how could you do that? There's no way. But you can't, honestly, you can't out-reason Jesus. And he's not even in it to win the argument. You ever notice that? None of Jesus' phrases end with gotcha, told you so, see, you know. It, like, like none of that's there. Because he's not in it for himself. Jesus only teaches righteousness. And so even in doing this, he's showing the law's never going to get you where you want it to go because you can't obey it the way you want to obey it. You have to break it to obey other parts of it. It doesn't get you there. It doesn't finish what you need. And so why would you be mad that I made a whole person well? Well, I'd be mad you made a whole person well because you're really only looking at how somebody behaves and not concerned about the heart. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Judge righteously. Judge in the right way. Don't look at appearances. Mad that I healed on the Sabbath. He's the Messiah. The Messiah does this kind of work. The Messiah heals and the Messiah restores, and yet they're mad at him about it. And so I think, in the same way, when you look at Jesus' humility, are we, are, are we humble enough to just... Submit ourselves to God's will? Do we want to obey and, and move where God moves and not move where God says don't move and be silent if we're unsure or even just wait? When I think about this, I just go, where's our attention? Is our attention on outer appearances or is our attention on the heart? I vacillate. All right, I go back and forth. Between heart and appearance, and heart and appearance. The Lord never does. But I'm always going, heart, appearance, heart, appearance. And sometimes when I'm in, my, in kind of the, the right mindset, maybe I had a really good morning, which is kind of a work, right? But you're, you're praying, you're ready, you've had good conversations. You're just kind of in a, you're in the zone, right? You're in the spiritual zone. You're ready. And you can handle something the right way, and you can think about it the right way. And then, you know, the next day you're just mad because maybe your coffee was cold or something like that. And you're in a bad mood now. And you just get mad at somebody else because... You judge what they do, or maybe some way they said something, or maybe their tone, and you even read into it, because man does this all the time, yet God doesn't do this. This is why Jesus can stand up in front of the crowds and say, you're not understanding the law right if you think that I'm the lawbreaker. Remember uh, last year we did the Sermon on the Mount? And the Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus expanding the law. And what is, how does he expand it? He expands it past behavior, doesn't he? He expands it to heart. 
And he challenges people to go, I know you think it's do not murder, but if you've ever hated or called somebody a fool, you've already done it. I know you've said don't commit adultery, but if you've even lusted, you've already done it. And so he uses these illustrations to show all people are lawbreakers because you're only trying to get in or win approval by how you're making it look and not by your heart. One of the most famous verses that we have on this is during the selection of David to be the anointed king of Israel. And Saul is going to do that. And he goes to Jesse's house and Jesse begins parading out his sons one by one as you would do. And you start with the oldest and you move to the youngest. And so when he sees the oldest, he's convinced I'm not Samuel, not Saul. Uh, he, he, the Lord's rejected Saul. So Samuel sees the oldest, and he goes, this is the guy, isn't it? This is the one. The oldest, the oldest son of Jesse has to be the guy. And what does the Lord say? What do we learn in this? The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outer appearance but God looks at the heart. What does Jesus say? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus gives the reminder to the crowds listening to them to him that they think they obey the law by holding to the letter without holding to the heart. He shows them how they themselves understand a principle because they apply it in the issue of circumcision. They understand a principle, but they can't appropriately apply it beyond that. And praise the Lord for the Savior because we do the same time and time again. We look at how people might dress, and we go, clearly they don't love God. Clearly they don't love God. They must not be interested in spiritual things. Or we look at how they parent. We go, if they really loved God, they'd make homeschooling a priority, or they'd uh, make private schooling a priority, or they'd make public, whatever it is, right? Public schoolers are mad that private schoolers aren't missional enough, or homeschoolers aren't missional enough. Homeschoolers are mad because we're all sending our kids to Rome. Like, all of us have these ways of... Just being mad at one another, because all we look at is like, well, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? We have this terrible inability to discern heart. Because we only look on the outside. And here's the thing. You'll never get it right. I want to get better and better at understanding people's hearts. But I only do that as I better understand the heart of God. So my concern ultimately is not for me to get better at discerning whether or not you're walking with God. My concern is to walk more with God. And as I walk more with God, I am able, by God's grace and his spirit within me, to treat you better and more righteously, to speak to you more lovingly and graciously, to not rush to judgment or frustration. Why? Because Jesus changed me, and I want to continue to walk with him. But the thing is, faith is necessary in all of these.
you, know, you can just pick the easy ones with how you dress or how you speak or how you parent, music you listen to, movie you may or may not see. Like you can just go, we, we can make all kinds of conclusions, draw all kinds of conclusions about one another based upon how we think that they are. Praise God, he looks at hearts, he confronts hearts, and he changes hearts. Because we are just sorely unable to think rightly. I would love to think that I've been in that crowd, I'm going, no, Lord, it's you, I got it, we're in, we, we love you, you're the best. I'd be the same one going, you must have a demon. You must, you, you are, you are demon-possessed. That would be me. Because I've been at this religious thing for a while, and you don't fit any box. It's not my misunderstanding that's the problem. It's your living. But now, think about those ideas that Jesus has even shown us. Obedience, humility, righteousness. These things all work together, don't they? The perfectly obedient, perfectly humble, perfectly righteous son teach us how to walk with our God. But it can only be done through faith. Not by man's understanding, not by the world's wisdom, not by anything other than total surrender to him. Through faith in Christ, we can be transformed. It is good. It is good. That the Son of God cared so much about us that he would not leave us in our sorry state, but met us and can change us through faith. That we might be able to live for God, not as enemies of God, but friends of God. It's glorious.